Welcome to lesson number three on survey of theology. Uh, and we are moving away from bibliology into theology proper, which is the study of God himself. Uh, before we jump completely into theology proper, I would like to make one more comment about bibliology, and that is why I spend so much time going to the scripture. And it's because the scripture sets forth truth in propositional terms uh, that we can look at, we can read, and, and we can understand what it says. Now, there are people who make claims to knowledge that's not verifiable. For example, I know some Christians who say, well, God spoke to me and told me. Okay, well, I understand what you're saying. I just don't have a way to verify that <clears throat> because he didn't speak to me and he didn't say the same thing. So it raises questions about how do you know what you know? And uh, whereas I can go to the Bible and I can say, you know, God loves me, and I can read John 3.16 and see that that's what that says. We see this sometimes even in our hymns. Uh, for example, there's a hymn called He Lives, which I love. I grew up with the hymn. It's a, it's a very, uh, it's, it's a well-written hymn, except for one little line in there I just, I have a question about or, or don't agree with. But the hymn writer makes the claim. He says, he lives, he lives, talking about Jesus. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. Well, the hymn writer is making a claim to knowledge, and the knowledge is specifically that Jesus lives. In the very last line, he poses the question, you ask me how I know he lives. That's epistemology. It raises the question, how do you know what you know? And so the hymn writer, he poses the question, you, <clears throat> the person I'm telling that Jesus lives, uh, I'm making this claim to knowledge that he lives. And so you ask me, well, how do I know that he lives? And the answer he gives, he lives within my heart. Well, I'm sorry, I can't look into your heart to verify that. So am I just supposed to just simply trust you, uh, you know, without any question with regard to your experience? Uh, and so it raises questions here. <clears throat> but again, there's a claim to knowledge. And that knowledge is predicated on something subjective within the person. But think of another hymn. And this one I grew up with as a little boy. My grandmother taught me this. And it's Jesus Loves Me. Okay. Now, it's making a claim to, to something to being true. Jesus loves me. This I know. Now, again, it's a claim to knowledge. It's a claim that Jesus, this historical person, loves me. He says, uh, Jesus loves me. This I know for the... Bible tells me so. And, and you see what's just happened there. We've moved away from a subjective uh, impression that's not verifiable to an objective statement that can be proven <clears throat> from the biblical text. I mean, I can look at John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so I look at that and we can, we can both look at it, and we can read the words on the page, and we can both agree that's what that says. Now, we might not, uh, we might not accept it. We might not believe it to be true. But we, we can both look at it and say that's what that says. So there's this difference between objective and subjective information. Now, when I go to the Word of God, and I'm constantly going to the Word of God, and I will bring up the Scripture over and over and over and over and over, because that is the basis for truth. And that's why I... Uh, drive this point as much as I do, because I'm making a case for God, and I'm doing it from the scriptures, and so that is what makes me a biblicist. Now, does that mean that I don't 
have experiences um, to share? Of course I do. And I'll share experiences throughout uh, these Bible lessons. Uh, but it always has to be based on the truth of God's Word. <clears throat> All right, let's jump into theology proper. And in lesson number five, we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, Dr. Chafer sets forth four arguments that are commonly used for the existence of God. And these are philosophical arguments, and I think that collectively they have weight to them. Uh, but I generally am going to go to the Scriptures. The first one here is what's called the ontological argument. And this holds that God exists because, uni because people universally and historically believe that he exists and seek after him. In other words, the creature does not crave that which does not exist. Um, and so it's the argument that people universally and historically believe he exists and therefore seek after him, therefore he must exist. The cosmological argument has to do with cause and effect. And it says that the universe cannot be its own cause. Uh, and so it seems rational that behind such a complex and orderly universe uh, would be an intelligent creator. Third is what's called the teleological argument. And this holds that there is design and order in the universe, and this would require an intelligent designer. Fourth is the anthropological argument, which holds that man is unique in the world, having intellect, sensibility, and volition, and that man's existence is best explained by a creator, with similar qualities. So those are interesting to think about, um, but one of the things that when I go to the Bible, especially like in Genesis 1-1, which says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible assumes the existence of God. The Bible does not try to prove the existence of God. It assumes the existence of God. And again, God is revealed through his creation. God is revealed within each and every one of us because God has made himself evident to us. Uh, and so God has revealed himself, and I do not try to uh, use crafty uh, arguments. I, again, I think that collectively, I think that these can be brought up. But I generally appeal to each person on the reality that, in fact, God does exist. <clears throat> so let's talk about the unity of the Trinity, the unity of the Trinity. Now, this is a hotly debated subject uh, in some circles. And the doctrine of the Trinity simply teaches that there is one God who exists as three persons. Now, when we say that there's one God, we're talking about one in essence, but three in person. One in essence, but three in person. Uh, and all three persons are co-equal, that is, they share the same attributes. They are co-infinite, that is, they are not bound by time or space. And they are co-eternal, that is, they have eternally existed. Now, the Bible does not teach tritheism, that there are three absolutely separate gods. The Bible does not teach that. Nor does it teach modalism, that there is one person who manifests himself in three forms as Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, I heard somebody give this argument one time, and, you know, they were saying, well, I'm a... I'm a, I'm a husband, so I wear a hat, and, and, uh, and I'm a father, and, or I'm, I, I'm a father, and so I have children, so I, wear, I, I play that role, and then I'm a worker, and I go to work, and I wear that role. And so you have one person in three modes of a function of being, and that's the line of reasoning that goes with that. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that there are three persons, and each of them are God, but they are one in essence. So there is both a unity and a plurality there. And, that's, and, and some use the phrase triunity, 
which I think may communicate as well. Now, though there are difficulties in understanding the Trinity, the biblical evidence is clear that God exists as three distinct persons. So let's talk about the three persons of the Godhead. Uh, First of all, the three persons of the Godhead are one in essence, one in essence. And you think of passages like Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And one there translates the Hebrew numeral echad. So the passage reads, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Echad. Uh, Shema Yisrael, Hear, O Israel. Uh, Yahweh Elohim, uh, the Lord is our God. Yahweh Echad, the Lord is one. And so this means that he is one in essence. So the word one here is the idea of a complex one. Now you'll have to bear with me. Hold on for a second and follow me on this. But the idea, uh, a scripture that God being one in essence, one in purpose, one in function, one in agreement, uh, uh, has, uh, has clear understanding in other passages. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Not one in the same person, but one in purpose, one in essence, one in agreement. Now, the use of the Hebrew numeral echad reveals in some, com- in some context the idea of a complex one, a complex one. For example, in Genesis 2.24, Moses writes, he says, For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife. Stop. So we have a husband, we have a a man, we have a woman, uh, and they uh, are joined together, and they shall become one flesh, echad. Now, this doesn't mean that at the marriage union that they somehow morph into an androgynous new species uh, with the characteristics of male and female. That's not what happens. They come together to be one in purpose, one in function, one in agreement, but they retain their individual identity, yet they are one. They are a unit. It's a complex one. And so they shall become one flesh. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now when the seventh month came, and the sons of Israel, plural, catch that, when the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man, echad ish. They came together as one man. So we have this plurality coming together in unity, in purpose, in function, in agreement. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 17. Let me back up just another verse here. God is talking to Ezekiel, and he says, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, uh, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. So he's, he's got two sticks, and he's got some writing on them. And then he says in verse 17, Then join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick that they may become one in your hand, that they, plural, may become one, echad, in your hand. You see what's going on there. So you have a complex one. So you have a plurality within the unity. And so when you read Deuteronomy 6, 4, and you read the Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Echad, you realize there that that is a complex one. And so we'll see this in other passages as well. In fact, we could go back and look at... um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, where you have this uh, implied trinity. Genesis 1, 26, it says, Then God said, notice God there, Elohim, Then God said, Let us 
make man in our image according to our likeness. And so you have the plurality there. I would argue there's, that there's an implied trinity there. And so you see that in certain passages. You see that plurality that appears there. <clears throat> now, there is one God who exists as three distinct persons within the Trinity. And I think of the, of the uh, baptismal formula that's given over in Matthew 28, 19, when Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples the, is the directive. That's the imperative. Uh, go is a participle. Um, and if I remember correctly, it's a circumstantial participle. So it could be while you're going. Make disciples and of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you have three persons mentioned here: uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's interesting is the word "name" uh, translates the uh, Greek noun "anima," which is singular. Now that's interesting to me because you would almost expect it to be plural in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in one sense we might say it's bad grammar, but good theology. Uh, Galatians one one, where uh, the Apostle Paul refers uh, here to God the Father. Very straightforward. Nobody really has a question on that one. Where people get hung up on is God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And I'm thinking specifically of like Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, who argue that Jesus is a creature. He came into being at a point in time. Mormons believe this too, by the way. And, uh, and, uh, and they believe that, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the Holy Spirit is just a force. Well, that doesn't make sense either, as we're about to see here in a minute. But we think of uh, passages like John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here you have the Word which is with God, and the Word which is God. So now you have both uh, members, you have two of the members of the Trinity here, God the Father and God the Son. It says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word is begotten from the Father, uniquely born. Monogenes uh, is the word that is used there, and monogenes uh, might better be rendered as uniquely born, <clears throat> because that's what he is. But here the word becomes flesh. In theology, we call this the doctrine of the hypostatic union, where Jesus is undim where, where he is undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. And we'll unpack this a little bit more later on, but we understand this. John 1.18, no one has seen God, that is the Father, at any time. The only begotten God, monogenes theos, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And explained him here uh, translates the Greek word exegeomai, uh, which we get the word exegesis from, and it means that he has revealed him or explained him. But the only begotten God who is in the bosom of God the Father, he has explained him. Over in John chapter 20, verse 28, when Thomas saw the risen Lord, he said to him, My Lord and my God my Lord and my God. I asked a Jehovah's Witness one time about this, and he said, oh, well, he was just using an expletive. He was just, you know, throwing. I thought, what? Are you kidding me? But they had to explain it away some way. But he says, he, he refers to Jesus as my Lord and my God. Uh, clearly, very clear statement there. Hebrews 1.8 1, 1, 8 is another clear statement. But of the Son, notice this, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Again, very clear statement. And the Holy Spirit is God. 
Acts chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, in which Peter's talking to Ananias. I've got to plug my computer in before it dies on me. In which uh, Peter's talking to uh, Ananias, and he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Pause for a moment. If the Holy Spirit's just a power, you can't lie to a power. I can't lie to the electricity that's, you know, powering my house at the moment and my electronics, my camera and my microphone, which is just to hear out of sight. Uh, but you can lie to a person. And so he says uh, that he accuses Ananias here of lying to the Holy Spirit, who in the very next verse, he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. Very clearly, the Holy Spirit is God. There's no question about it. So all three are co-equal, co-infinite, and co-eternal, and worthy of all praise. Now we think about the names of God. Uh, the primary names of God are Yahweh, uh, which is the proper name of God, and it most often is translated Lord with all capital letters, capital O, capital R, capital, uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now when I see that in my NASB, my New American Standard Bible, the 1995 update version, I know that that's a translation of the proper name of God of Yahweh. But then we also see uh, the name Adonai, Adonai, <clears throat> which is commonly translated Lord with a capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. And then we also see Elohim, <clears throat> excuse me, Elohim, which is commonly translated God with a capital G, lowercase o, lowercase d. Now that's not 100% of the time. There are times where they do translate Yahweh as God. Um, and sometimes you'll see Yahweh Elohim. Uh, and you'll see other names for God, Yahweh Tzidkanu, uh, you know, uh, the Lord our righteousness. Uh, and you'll see other names of God. Yahweh Yireh, the Lord is our provider. Some say Jehovah Jireh, but it's Yahweh Yireh. Now let's talk about the attributes of God. Now the attributes of God refer to those characteristics of God, those attributes that make up the very essence of God. <clears throat> So when I say that they share all the same attributes, when I talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they all share these attributes. The first attribute that I have here is that God is living. God is living. And this means that God is the ultimate source of life. He is the ultimate source of life. In Psalm 42, 2, he is referred to as the living God. The living God. And, um, and his life is completely independent it does not depend on anything outside of himself. He is self-existent. Aseity is the theological term for that. But God is living, and he is the ultimate source of life. In Acts 17.28, Paul states that for in him we live and move and exist. So my life is dependent life. It is dependent upon God. And God gave me life. In Psalm 100 verse 3, it says uh, uh, that it is the Lord God who has made us and not we ourselves. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says that the body shall return to the dust, and the, and the spirit, the Ruach, shall return to God who gave it, to return to God who gave it, because God gives the immaterial part of man. I mean, you get your good looks from your mom and dad, but you get your, your immaterial comes to you from God, uh, and so it returns to God who gave it. But in him we live and move and exist. And God is personal, thoughtful, emotive, volitional, and active. And by the way, this attribute takes priority, for if God is not living, then none of the other attributes are even possible. 
I mean, think of it. If God is not living, then none of the other attributes are even possible. God is also said to be self-existent, self-existent, and, and that his existence depends on nothing outside of himself. John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 5, 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, he has life in himself. Uh, and so there is no prior cause that brought God into existence. He will never cease to be, and he depends on nothing outside of himself. God is holy, Kodesh. Uh, and this means that he is positively righteous and separate from all that is sinful. Now, this becomes important later on when we begin to look at, at the gospel message. Because we cannot measure up to God's righteousness. And he cannot, he cannot in any way wink at our sin or just dismiss it. He must judge it. And he's either going to judge it in us or he's going to judge it in a substitute. Holiness connotes moral purity. Meaning, uh, being holy means God cannot be affixed to anything that is morally impure. God is spirit. John 4.24 says God is spirit. And of course, those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And this means that the nature of God's being is spirit, not material. Now, he created matter. <clears throat> and I think that even when God formed Adam from the dust of the earth, when you get down and you look at uh, Genesis 2, for example, when God formed him from the dust of the earth and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the Nashamach Chaim, and he takes that breath in. At that moment, it says, and he became a living soul, a nefesh. Uh, he became a living soul at that moment. So there is a biological aspect to man, and there is an immaterial aspect to man. And I think that when God formed the first man, when he formed Adam, and he created him in a state of maturity, and he, he, he imputed intellect to him immediately, because uh, one second after he created him, God could have a conversation with him. And had we walked in the garden five minutes after God had created Adam, we would not have thought, oh, he's five minutes old. Our, our fundamental presuppositions about, about, about his being uh, would have been flawed uh, because he was created in a state of maturity as everything was created in a state of maturity. The whole universe was created in a state of maturity. When God created the stars, uh, which are millions and billions of light years away, he stretched out the light so that it was immediately visible uh, to Adam and Eve. Uh, at the time of their creation, so that they could immediately be aware of the universe about them. And he created everything in a state of maturity. He created, uh, in six literal 24-hour days, he created all the trees in a state of maturity. They were created uh, with fruit hanging on them. So again, if we'd have walked in the garden on day seven, we would not have looked at those trees and thought, oh, that's you know those are six days old, or just a couple days old. We would not have thought that. Uh, so he creates everything in a state of maturity. But when he formed... Adam from the dust of the earth, uh, and later when he formed Eve uh, from the rib of Adam, uh, I think that when God created mankind, uh, I think he was thinking down the road about the form that he would take upon himself, because there's something in the very form itself that would be used by God to communicate revelation about God. And so there's intentionality there. Uh, but when we think of the fundamental nature of God, it is spirit and not material. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Psalm 115, uh, verse 3, But our God is in the heavens, and He does whatever He pleases. He does whatever He pleases. Isaiah 46, 9-11, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Daniel 4.35 from the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? And so God does as he pleases, always as he pleases, and only as he pleases. He is sovereign over the universe. We'll talk about that more here in just a moment. God is immutable, which means that he does not change. Psalm 102.26, Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. And that's encouraging, because what we know about God will always be true of God. He does not change. And this means that God's essential nature does not change. God is eternal. He's called the eternal God. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.17 says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. And so this means that God has always existed, does exist, and forever will exist. God is infinite, which means he is not bound by time or space. Now he exists in time and space, but he's beyond it. He's infinite in being. 1 Kings 8.27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Jeremiah 23.24, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? God is omniscient, which means that he is all-knowing, not, with, not only with regard to the actual, but the probable. What would have happened if you'd have dated uh, one girl rather than another? What would have happened if you'd bought this car rather than that that car? Taken this job rather than that job? Turned left rather than turned right? And that opens up a whole infinite number of possibilities. And every second that you live opens up another infinite uh, amount of possibilities. I say infinite, but it would have been in the hundreds or thousands of possibilities. Who knows? But that changes the whole course of life. But God is omniscient. He knows not only the actual, but the probable. In Psalm 139, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. And even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. And so God is, he's aware of everything about us. Every thought before we think it, every word before we speak it, he knows how many hairs are on our head. And trust me, every day I lose hair, I look in the sink and there's another one. My hairline's receding. I used to have a hair full of hair. I used to wear it long, if you can believe that, you know, 30 plus years ago. But he knows everything. He knows how many times I will blink in my life, how many times I will breathe. He knows how many times my heart will beat. He knows how many molecules are in this body of mine. And not just me, but 8 billion other people on the planet. And he's aware of every bird in the sky and every fish in the sea and every grain of sand upon the seashore and every flower in the field. And not just upon our planet, but upon billions of other stars just in our galaxy. And there's roughly 100 billion stars in our galaxy. And last I heard, a rough estimate, there's about 100 billion galaxies in the universe. I mean, you talk about big. God is aware of it all. He knows it all. And this means that all that God knows all things. He is infinite in his knowledge. 
And God is omnipresent. He's equally and fully everywhere all the time. He's never more in one place or less than another. And people say, oh, I don't feel the presence of God. Well, he's there. He's there whether we feel him or not. He's omnipresent. He's equally and fully everywhere all the time. David in Psalm 139 shifts away from God's omniscience to his omnipresence. And he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. He gets poetic. He says, even if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. So God is omnipresent and he is all powerful, which means that he is able to accomplish all that he desires. He is able to accomplish all that he desires. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 40, 28, do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? He's all powerful. God is righteous. He is righteous in, per- in person for the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. Psalm 139, verse uh, 137, righteous are you, O Lord. I did my doctoral dissertation on the attribute of God's righteousness. God is righteous, and he is, his righteousness is that intrinsic moral perfection from which he commands all things in heaven and earth and declares as good that which conforms to his righteousness and as evil that which deviates. And God is just, Psalm 9, 7, and 8, but the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne in judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And so his justice is the outworking of his righteousness, in which he justifies or condemns, blesses or curses, that which does not conform to his righteous character. Righteousness and justice are very closely related together. Uh, We might even call them tandem attributes. Because what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. So that if the righteousness of God approves of something, the, the justice of God blesses. But if the righteousness of God rejects something, then the justice of God will condemn it. And so righteousness becomes that moral perfection of God that, which becomes the very standard for what is right and what is wrong, and his judgments are based on his moral perfections. So we think of righteousness and justice as very closely related attributes. God is true. God is true. John 10.10. But the Lord is the true God. John 17.3. You are the only true God. And this means that he is genuine. He's the real deal uh, compared to fakes, such as idols, in contrast to false or fake idols. God is truthful. 2 Samuel 7.28, your words are truth. John 17.17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So his knowledge and declarations literally define reality and help us to make sense of what is. And God is love. God is love. Of course, John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not, uh, who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. By the way, that's a one-way truth. You can't reverse that. You cannot say love is God. 
as I heard somebody try to do one time, and it doesn't work. It's a one-way truth. God is love, and God is good, and he is the ultimate source of all that is good. Psalm 100 verse 5 says the Lord is good. The Lord is good. And not only that, but God is faithful. And I have one here that is out of place, so we will have to get this corrected in the next set of notes. But God is faithful. And this means that he uh, is reliable in all he says and does, always keeping his word. He is God, the faithful God. And this means that he is reliable in all he says and does, always keeping his word. And God is merciful. God is merciful. But you, are, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger. That's another attribute of God. He's slow to anger, but God is merciful. And mercy is when God is kind toward us and does not judge us as we deserve. And God is gracious. God is gracious. Uh, Psalm 111 verse 4 says, The Lord is gracious. And grace means that God treats us better than we deserve. So these are 20 attributes. I've got 19 listed here because I messed up on my notes. Uh, But number 18 should be God is faithful. Number 19 should be God is merciful. Uh, And number 20 is God is gracious. And I will correct that in my notes uh, before I send them out. So that way you'll have that. Let's talk for a moment about the sovereignty of God. To say that God is sovereign over his creation uh, means, again, that he does as he pleases, always as he pleases, and only as he pleases. Uh, Now, according to Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, he says, The attributes of God make clear that God is supreme over all. He yields to no other power, authority, or glory, and he is not subject to any absolute greater than himself. He, he, he represents perfection to an infinite degree in every aspect of his being. He can never be surprised, defeated, or uncertain. Or uncertain. Uh, sorry for the pause. Okay, so he goes on. He says, however, without sacrificing his authority or jeopardizing the final realization of his perfect will, it has pleased God to give to men a measure of freedom of choice, and for the exercise of of this choice, God holds man responsible, end quote. So it is from the sovereignty of God that we even have life and freedom to move about. So that is extended to us. And Dr. Robert Leitner adds, to confess God's sovereignty is to view him as the absolute and sole ruler of the universe. True, he uses human and even angelic means to accomplish his ends, yet he remains in in complete control of his world and everything in it. Absolutely nothing escapes his notice, and nothing takes place that is not under his jurisdiction. The sovereignty of God includes his omnipotence and omniscience, yet it involves more. He is in control. He is working out his plan. God's sovereignty um, includes his freedom to do whatever he wills. He has no limitations or restrictions except his own self, and he never violates his own holy character. He never wills or performs anything contrary to himself and his purposes. There is no inner conflict with God. He is always consistent with himself." And uh, lastly here, we'll talk about the decree of God, which I will touch on lightly. God's decree refers to all that he has directed to come to pass. 
both by his active involvement in creation as well as that which he permits. From eternity past, God has devised a single plan for human history which entails every particular thing and event. And he creates the spheres of life in which he permits people to act either for or against him. All right, so let's move into the next lesson here and let's talk about God the Father. The Father of, as the first person within the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is observed in the Old Testament and clearly seen in the New Testament. Uh, God the Father is presented as the first person among the members of the Trinity. Each person is observed in Scripture as having certain characteristics and activities. Quoting Chafer here, he says, quote, The Father is presented as electing, loving, and bestowing. The Son is presented as suffering, redeeming, and upholding the universe. The Holy Spirit is presented as regenerating, indwelling, baptizing, energizing, and sanctifying, end quote. So his point is, is that even though they're one in essence, they have different roles that they play. In a second, in number two here, in a general sense, the first person of the Godhead is considered to be the father of all creation. The father of all creation. And Malachi 2.10 here says, Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? So in one sense, he is the father of all creation. Ephesians 3.14 and 15, uh, For this reason I bow the knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now this is not to be confused with universal salvation, which teaches that everyone goes to heaven. That's not true. But in one sense, God is the Father of all creation. Uh, the first person of the Godhead is Father by intimate relationship. Father by intimate relationship. Uh, and here, like in Exodus 4.22, then you shall, this is what God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son. So here, uh, the idea of father is that of an intimate relationship. And we are called children of God. We are called children of God. Now, the first person of the Godhead is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 3, 17. And this is Jesus at his baptism. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Um, Matthew 17, 5. This is at the Mount of Transfiguration, um, in which it reads here, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Of course, we think of John 17, 1. Uh, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes toward heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that, your, that the Son may glorify you. So he's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, here, quoting uh, from Dr. Chafer again, he says, quote, Obviously, the terms Father and Son are used of God to describe the intimate relationship of the first and second persons without necessarily fulfilling all the aspects that would be true in a human relationship of Father and Son. This is especially evident in the fact that both the Father and the Son are eternal, end quote. So we have to be careful not to push the language too far. It is used to help us to understand the intimacy of the relationship between them, like that of a father to a son. Uh, but we should not understand that one begot the other, 
in the sense that there was a time when Jesus or the Son did not exist and the Father brought him into being and so on. And that's what Chaffer's getting at here. Point number five, the Father of all who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Galatians 3.26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, in contrast, those who are not children of God belong to Satan. Uh, Matthew 13.38, Jesus talking about the parable of the wheat and the tares, uh, talks about the tares, and he says, These are the, well, he says, and the, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. That is of Satan. John eight forty four. You are uh, Jesus here talking to the Pharisees. He says, "You are of your father, the devil." Quoting Chafer again, he says, quote, "Emphasis should be placed on the fact that it is not in the power of anyone to make himself a child of God. God alone can undertake such a transformation, and He undertakes it only on the one condition." that he himself has imposed, and that Christ shall be believed upon and received as Savior, end quote. And John 1.12 is the passage he cites here, which says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So that is going to close out this section here on the doctrine of the Trinity and looking specifically at God the Father. God the Father. And so in the next lesson, we will pick up and talk about God the Son, His deity, and His eternity. Thank you very much.